Lecture 13, Conflict and Assimilation. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we looked at the reign of William the Conqueror, and we concentrated mostly on what William had to do to consolidate his conquest of England. He had to cope with rebellions, certainly, and one of the ways he did this was to make a whole-scale redistribution of lands to his supporters. He essentially created a new elite in England. But he left most of the lower layers of the social hierarchy largely as they were. For many English people, the most important immediate result of the Norman Conquest is that they get a new lord. But that was just the start of the process of creating a new society, a blend of English and Norman. And in this lecture, I want to talk in a little bit of detail about what this process is like. How do English and Normans deal with one another? So we'll look at the legal implications of the conquest, but we're also going to look at the social and cultural effects of the conquest. How do people interact with each other? How are they affected on a personal level by the change of regime? In this lecture, we're going to use a variety of very different kinds of sources to answer these questions. The first one we'll look at is the famous Doomsday Book, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on Doomsday Book. This is an amazing work. It includes all sorts of information about land and people in England under William the Conqueror. It'll tell us a lot of hard facts. It'll tell us how many plows there are on the estates of the Bishop of Lincoln in Huntingdonshire. But we're also going to look at chronicles and other sources to get a feel of what post-conquest England is like. So that's the plan for this lecture. Let's start with Doomsday Book. It's really two books, one very large book and one smaller book, but they go together. And they contain information about English lands. It's organized county by county. And then within each county chapter, there are entries for the lands of each major landholder in that county. That's the basic setup of Doomsday Book. Now, it's an extremely complicated document, and it's very controversial. Many books have been written about it, and scholars disagree about almost everything to do with it, including the very basic question of what it's supposed to be for. We can't be completely sure what the point of Doomsday Book is. Why was it made? Some scholars think the king is trying to pave the way for imposing a new kind of tax. So he wants to know, how do you assess the tax throughout England? Some people think he's trying to square away who has the right to different estates. We'll deal with this question a little bit later in the lecture. But first, I want to describe what Doomsday is and how it was compiled. And then we'll try to figure out why it was compiled and what it was used for. The first thing to say is Doomsday Book is an amazing resource. If William the Conqueror did anything that modern historians bless him for, it was ordering the compilation of Doomsday Book in 1086. Now, of course, William doesn't call it Doomsday Book. That's a nickname given to it a bit later, because people come to feel that the information in Doomsday Book is destined to last until the end of time, hence Doomsday. But William isn't thinking about the end of time. He's thinking about right now. He needs information for some reason. We are not exactly sure why. And he sets up a very elaborate process to get that information. Here's what a later chronicler says about what William wants to know. 
He wants to find out how many hides of land there are in England. Remember, a hide is a unit of land notionally meant to support a single family. He wants to know how many hides of land the king has and how many hides the various barons and bishops have. And here it's important to remember the church owns a lot of land. The king also wants to know what are these lands worth? How much revenue can they bring in? And also, this is quite interesting, he wants to know what these lands used to produce in the time of King Edward the Confessor. And this is a way of getting at how the economy has changed after the Norman Conquest. Essentially, the king wants to know everything he can about the productive capacity of England. How rich are we? What do we really have? Now, this level of detail made a very big impression on people at the time. Nothing like this had ever been attempted before. And in a later chronicler's uh, description of this, you can hear a sort of sense of amazement about the Doomsday Project. He wrote, so thoroughly was all this carried out that there did not remain in the whole of England a single hide of land, or an ox, or a cow, or a pig that was not written in that brief. You can almost get a sense that this chronicler is a little bit oppressed by this. He's sort of feeling as if this is Big Brother going a bit too far. But you can't help but be impressed by how William went about getting all of this information. He mobilized literally hundreds, probably thousands of people who all worked to create the final product. The first step is to create commissions. These are small groups of officials who are assigned to a particular part of England. That's their territory that they're going to cover. And these areas are called circuits. And each one was made up of a group of counties. There were seven of these circuits, and they're organized to make sense geographically. For example, Circuit 2 is made up of five counties in the southwest, Wiltshire, Somerset, Dorset, Devon, and Cornwall. This is a pretty coherent territory. Circuit 7 is made up of three counties in the east, Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex. The idea clearly is that these are parts of the country that form a unit, and that makes sense. Okay, you're a doomsday commissioner. You've just been told you're doing Circuit 7. Actually, they wouldn't have been told that exactly. These numbers have been assigned to the circuits by modern scholars. So you've been told your job is Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex. Go find out everything you can. What do you do next? Well, you go off with the firm intention of taking full advantage of all of those elaborate administrative structures that were set up by the Anglo-Saxon state, the counties, the hundreds, all of that that we covered in a previous lecture. So the commissioners go to each county by turn, and in each county, they convene juries of local men from each hundred, each subdivision of the county. And they ask the jurors a series of questions about the land in that hundred. And the idea is that people in each local area are going to know who owns what land and what it's worth. There's probably some sort of basic questionnaire that the commissioners are working from. It varies a bit from circuit to circuit. In some places, they clearly asked more questions about livestock than they did in others. But essentially, they're after the same information. The basics I mentioned before. Who owns what land? Where is it? How much is it worth? One of the most interesting things that the juries were asked is, 
how much was the land worth in the past, and how much is it worth now? And they expressed this based on the king who was ruling at the time. So the value of the land in 1066 is called the value in the time of King Edward. The value in 1086, at the time the survey was done, that's in the time of King William. So you have a record of how values have changed during this very eventful 20-year uh, period. I mentioned in the last lecture that you could actually trace the effects of the harrying of the North, the results of the Northern Rebellion. Doomsday Book is where you can do that. There are places where the value in the time of King Edward is much higher than the value in the time of King William because those areas have not yet recovered from all of the looting and burning that was done at that point in the reign. On the other hand, there are plenty of areas where the values went up. So there's not a consistent pattern across England of how land values change. The economy is fairly localized. Lots of factors go into determining if an area is going to grow or not. But one big thing that helps is not having an army troop through your lands. So the juries provide quite a lot of information. Probably they did have some written records to go on. These are records kept at the hundred level and the county level. These records don't survive, but we can tell from Doomsday Book that there have to been some written sources to provide this level of detail. But there were some questions that couldn't be answered just by looking them up in a document. The juries were also asked to pronounce on some controversial questions, like who really had title to a particular piece of land in the neighborhood. There might have been a dispute about that. Perhaps it stretched back many years. One of the interesting things in Doomsday Book are the places where the jurors claim ignorance. They simply say, we don't know who has the right to that particular estate. Now, one modern scholar, I think, has made a very convincing argument about what's happening here. The jurors don't want to go on record one way or the other because they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They have to live in this neighborhood after the doomsday commissioners leave. And they're going to be rubbing shoulders with the two people who are having the dispute. So it's safest to just say, we don't know. So I think this gives us a sense of the wonderful complexity of post-conquest England. On the one hand, you've got this very sophisticated administrative machinery. You can actually go out and mobilize these juries all over the country to provide this detailed information. But on the other hand, sometimes these people are scared to death of their neighbors. So this is both assimilation and conflict at work. So the juries have now testified. Now, you, the commissioners, Gather up the information. It's on lots of separate sheets of par parchment called briefs. And these briefs are gathered up, they're brought back to a central location, and ultimately they're used to create Doomsday Book. And we can tell that the scribes of Doomsday Book abbreviated the information in the briefs. There was originally even more detail than we have now. We know this because there are other documents made from the briefs that do have more detail. Clearly, the Doomsday Book scribes figure that if they put in everything, nobody's going to be able to lift the final product. So the work of the commissioners is done. We know what Doomsday Book is, we know how it was compiled. But why was it compiled? That's a question. I'm not going to go into too much detail. As I've said, historians have gotten very exercised about this. 
I'm just going to give you the main theories, and then we're going to leave the question open. Some historians think that the king wanted to gather all of this information because he wants to impose a new kind of tax in England. He's going to use a new unit called the plowland. That's the theory. But the information in Doomsday Book is not organized in the best way for collecting taxes. It's listed within each county by landowner. This means if you want to hit up individual landowners who own land in more than one county, which is very commonly the case, you have to look at the information in more than one county. It's very cumbersome. But the biggest problem with this argument is also the fact that the method of collecting taxes wasn't changed. So it's a lot of trouble to go to and then change your mind about wanting to do it. One of the most interesting theories ties Doomsday Book to the famous event that took place in August of 1086 at Salisbury. This is the occasion I mentioned in the last lecture when King William gathers all the leading men of the kingdom and has them swear an oath of loyalty directly to him. One historian has argued that the king extracted the oath in exchange for Doomsday Book because Doomsday Book was a register of who really had the right to the land. And this was something that was going to help people feel secure in their title to land. It's a quid pro quo. You promise to serve me loyally, I'll ratify title to your land. Other historians have pointed out, though, that by this point, 20 years into the reign, most people are pretty secure about how their title is. After 20 years, some of the people who swear the oath at Salisbury are actually the sons of the first people to get the land. It's already been inherited once. So people aren't really that worried. We aren't going to solve this. So I want to move on to say something very briefly about some ways Doomsday Book was in fact used, whether that's why it was compiled in the first place or not. At the end of some of the county records in Doomsday Book, there's a section called clamores. Now, the Latin word clamores is what we get our word clamor from, big noise, and it means complaints. These are records of some of the very tricky disputes that I mentioned, where the jury sometimes don't want to get involved. And a remarkable number of these disputes actually do get addressed in the royal courts in the decades after Doomsday Book. And the last of these Complaints has settled well into the 12th century. And on a more general level, for centuries afterwards, people who find themselves in a dispute about the right to a particular piece of property would actually go to the Exchequer, the English Treasury Department, and we'll talk about that in the next lecture, where Doomsday Book was kept, and they would copy out the information from Doomsday Book that pertained to the particular estate they were interested in. So whether it's intended to be a register of title deeds in the first place, that is what it became. Now, I mentioned earlier that historians love Doomsday Book, even though they can't agree on what it was supposed to be. Doomsday has now been digitized, so we can learn a tremendous amount about the English economy at the time of the survey, simply from crunching the Doomsday numbers. That's how we know about the various economic trends after the conquest, how some areas were doing well and others weren't. We can also use this data to learn some other things about life in post-conquest England. So I want to turn from Doomsday Book itself now to talk for a few minutes about the society that Doomsday Book reveals to us. One thing that Doomsday Book seems to show us is that this is a society where the social structure varies a lot from region to region. 
One of the most interesting aspects of this variation is that the degree of freedom you see in different parts of the country varies. There are still a large number of slaves recorded in Doomsday Book. Now, slaves were going to decrease in number uh, as we head into the 12th century. But still, in 1086, there are large numbers of slaves. There are also many serfs. These are people who are not technically slaves. They're not owned outright, but they're tied to particular estates. Historians aren't really sure exactly when this category of people appears, these people who are sort of intermediate between slave and free. They're probably a product of the increasing power of kings and lords in the late Anglo-Saxon period. But at any rate, you see lots of them in Doomsday Book, and their numbers are going to go up just as the number of slaves will go down. But in some areas, especially in eastern England, in East Anglia, there seem to have been a large number of free men, people who either owned their land outright or who owed really very minimal obligations for their land. These are people who have the right to participate in the public courts, and they have a special name. They're called soakmen. So there are plenty of people who aren't dependent on a lord. So the personal status of English people can vary quite a bit. Now, despite these legal variations, it's important to stress that the overwhelming majority of English men and women are still dependent directly on the produce of the soil. Now, this much has not changed very much at all since we last looked at English society in the Anglo-Saxon period. There are probably several million people living in England in 1086. This is a very rough estimate. Most of them are working small plots of land according to the very basic geographical divisions we've talked about before, mostly arable farming in the southeast, mostly pastoral in the northwest. And most farmers are working on estates owned by lords. Now, these estates are called manors, and manors are the smallest units of agricultural production. A manor might include an entire village. However, some manors are big enough to include more than one village, and some villages belong partly to one manor and partly to another. Okay? That was obviously confusing, but it did happen. So manors and villages are not always exactly the same, but the manor is the basic unit of agricultural production. Farm labor, of course, is extremely arduous, but at least there have been some improvements since the Anglo-Saxon period. Gradually, a three-field system of crop rotation is being introduced. This increases the amount of land under cultivation at any one time. You can have only one-third of the land lying fallow while two-thirds are being used. They, you plant a series of crops, often wheat and then rye, but you might also plant legumes. That helps uh, with the nitrogen level of the soil. Also, the horse collar has been introduced, and that gives horses greater traction in pulling a plow. The day of the horse is just dawning. Still in 1086, most farmers are using teams of oxen, but we will see the horse take over uh, down the road. The thing about oxen is that they represent a huge capital investment. A single peasant family usually can't afford a whole team of six to eight oxen. So the teams of oxen would be shared by the families in the village, and this meant that the village had to cooperate in dividing up access to the oxen team. And since oxen are very hard to turn, it's hard to turn the, the team of oxen around, 
what they would do is arrange their land in very narrow strips so that you could go a long way with your oxen before you had to turn them. And this gives English villages a very characteristic pattern. Usually you have a nucleus. In the center, you've got the, the dwellings. And then radiating out from the houses, you've got these long, long strips of land. And each family would own several of these strips, but they wouldn't be next to each other. This would reflect the fact that there was an arrangement about who got the plow. One family would get it one day, then the next team would get it the next day, and it would go sort of all the way around the radius of the settlement. Now, obviously, there would be arguments uh, about this. Um, whose strip is whose? Who gets the oxen on Thursday? And for this reason, uh, manors would have their own courts that would handle disputes like these. And we'll talk more about these manor courts in a future lecture. Now, manors do seem to have increased in number after the conquest. You have uh, more peasants. I think we can call them that at this point. We have more peasants under the control of lords than before the conquest. But the most dramatic change in the landscape that's due to the conquest is undoubtedly the creation of the forest law. I mentioned in the very first lecture that control of the forests in England is a very valuable thing because they have all sorts of resources. They have timber, of course, but sources of food. The Norman kings, starting with William the Conqueror, create a brand new institution called the Royal Forest. And what this means is certain areas in England are declared to be officially the Royal Forest, and special laws will apply there. Hunting of game is restricted. Only the king can hunt for deer in the royal forest. Hunting is the quintessential royal pursuit, and the kings want to make sure that there are always going to be enough deer to be hunted. You also can't trap animals or cut down timber. It's an area of restricted access. And the laws to punish violators are very severe, often much more severe than penalties in the normal courts. Now, given how important wild sources of food are to making a living in this period, these restrictions could be a real hardship to the local community. And sometimes, to make matters worse, the king would declare an area to be part of the forest even if it doesn't really have a lot of trees. And this was just to increase the amount of money that he could collect in fines for the various offenses. So people really hate the forest law. But the forests do at least provide jobs. And we have records starting in the 12th century of men whose job it is to hunt wolves in the royal forests, because you don't want the wolves getting the deer either. So life for peasants, the people at the bottom of the social ladder, maybe doesn't change all that much due to the conquest, except in the newly forested areas. There's a different lord, but they could live with that. There's a bit of improvement for slaves, a bit of a reduction in status for free peasants. The class of people at the bottom it's becoming slightly more uniform from a legal point of view. But there are changes higher up the ladder that directly contribute to creating a new kind of English people, one made up of men and women of both English ancestry and Norman ancestry, all of whom think of themselves as English. And this is probably already true by the late 12th century. Now, within a single generation, English and Normans are making accommodations with each other. They're beginning to get along. One way this happens is due to intermarriage, and this happens right away. At the top of the scale, William the Conqueror is encouraging marriages between his followers and English heiresses. That's a very easy way to transfer land from English hands to Norman hands. One important result of these marriages is the children, 
often grow up bilingual. They speak both French and English. And the process goes on as the result of unions that are a little bit less authorized as well. For example, the famous Norman administrator and cleric, Renolf Flambard, who later becomes Bishop of Durham, he had an English mistress named Alviva in the town of Huntingdon, and he later married her off to an accommodating Norman follower. Many clerics from Normandy married English wives. Now, they're not supposed to be marrying anybody, but the church is only just starting to crack down on marriage by priests at this point. So the process of assimilation is beginning, to a large degree, behind closed doors. Of course, language is one very important thing that changes as a result of the conquest, because French now becomes the prestige language. Upwardly mobile Englishmen do what they can to learn French, because they know this is going to give them a leg up on the social ladder, and they certainly know that they're going to be at a disadvantage without it. And this was true for both laymen and clerics. And there's a wonderful story from the life of St. Wolfrich of Hazelbury. He lived from about 1080 to 1154, so really in this post-conquest generation. Um, he cured a man who was dumb. Okay? And after the cure, the man was able to speak both French and English. He hadn't known any French before, but now after the cure, he can speak French. And this really upsets the local priest. The local priest says to Wolfrich, can't you give me French as well? I'm forced to keep my mouth shut when the bishop comes because I don't know any French. Now, one really interesting aspect of the conquest, something quite different from a lot of more modern conquests, is the English don't seem to have had any problem with French. They don't resist it. Those who can, learn it. Now, fewer Normans learn English, but again, this is a factor of social class. The higher up you are, the less you have to bother learning English. If you're the king's forester, you probably do need to speak English to do your job. The English also begin giving their children Norman names. This is a way of social climbing also, and it holds more the higher up you go on the social scale. So the overall number of English-sounding names, like Wolfrich, that gradually goes down, and you see the rise of a lot of Williams and Roberts and Henrys. The English names don't disappear, but within a generation or two of the conquest, you can no longer tell just by looking at somebody's name whether their ethnicity is Norman or English. Now, for historians, this is really annoying because it's hard then to figure out who people are and where they come from. But I think it's a sign that assimilation is proceeding on its merry way. Now, one very useful thing for historians, though, is that the Norman conquest seems to have stimulated a passion for English history, and it cut across ethnic lines. There's a market for works of English history, so a lot of them were written. And so we have great chronicles for the early Norman period in England. It seems as if the new residents of England want to get to know their adopted homeland. And a lot of the historians who take up this task, they come from ethnically mixed backgrounds. And this is the case most famously for the great historian Orderic Vitalis. He was born in England, in Shropshire. His father was a Norman cleric, and his mother was English. He learned Latin from an English priest. And then he's sent at the age of 10 or 11 to a Norman monastery called Saint-Evrule to become a monk. And he talks very movingly about what a wrench this was to leave his father, and he never saw his father again. 
Now, here he is in Normandy. From this vantage point, he writes a history of England, and it's one of our most useful sources for this period, and it's very pro-English. There are other writers like this who are probably of mixed ancestry, people like William of Malmesbury. They also wrote histories of England. Now, these writers wrote in Latin, but one of the most fascinating texts of this period is a history of England written in French. It's written by a man named Geoffrey Guimar, and it was commissioned by a noble patroness, a woman of Norman background, named Constance Fitzgilbert. She was the wife of a powerful baron. And essentially, Guimar's text is a translation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle from English into French. So one of the things that helped assimilation along in England is clearly the fact that the Normans who settle in England embrace the English past. They start to feel part of it. They have to read about it in French, but it was still, in a certain sense, their English history. Now, this is not to say that there were never any ethnic tensions. There certainly were. For quite a while after the conquest, there are certain jobs at the top of the hierarchy in both church and state that Englishmen can't get. There are hardly any English-born bishops for more than a generation, and the king's top advisors are certainly all of Norman background. This was noticed and resented and commented upon. And there are signs that the Normans looked down on the English, at least for a generation or two. And the most telling example of this, I think, comes from the reign of Henry I, who ruled from 1100 to 1135. And we're going to talk a lot about him in the next lecture. Henry was reputed to be an Anglophile. At least, he had relationships with a lot of English women. But it seems to have gone deeper than that. And he married a woman who was descended from the old English royal line, the Princess Matilda of Scotland, who was the great-great-granddaughter of Athelred and the great-granddaughter of Edmund Ironside. And King Henry did this because he wanted to reconcile the two royal lines, English and Norman, and this does seem to have helped, at least with his English subjects, quite a bit. Henry even asked that his son William be known as William Atheling. That's the English term for a royal prince, a potential successor to the throne. So Henry's doing a lot to meet his English subjects uh, more than halfway. But some of his Norman subjects mocked him for this. They liked to refer to King Henry and his very English wife as Godric and Godgifu. Now, Godric and Godgifu are two very quintessentially English names. And the idea is clearly the king and his wife are much too English for some of the Normans to put up with. Ultimately, though, the English and the Normans make their peace with each other surprisingly quickly. There is, of course, a little name-calling along the way. Well, by this point, we have an England that comes through the conquest, I think with much less ethnic conflict than we might have supposed. It's recovering nicely from the damage caused by the conquest, and the English and the Normans are reaching out to one another. They're creating a new English identity. It's strongly rooted in the English past. In our next lecture, we'll look in detail at the reign of the king who is a perfect model for this assimilation, Henry I, the king who is mockingly referred to as Godric. We'll see what sort of a king the youngest of William the Conqueror's sons turned out to be.